There was a little phrase that I used in the in the meditation just now. In the sense of speaking about meditation as the opportunity to meet life more fully, more fluidly, more freely. And firstly it's just a nice convenient mnemonic, right? I like lists of words that begin with the same letter. It just it's probably just helps remember. But there's also something about that association of qualities more fully, more fluidly, more freely that um, that I've reflected on a lot and found very useful. And I thought in the light of the theme and the way we've been looking at a kind of this, this sort of pull of the heart towards, uh, towards a deepening, a deepening understanding, a deepening capacity, deepening responsiveness to life, that I would look a little through the lens of these three qualities and do so in such a way as to, to like yesterday, to lead towards uh, an inquiry of your own. And maybe I'll just to let you know ahead of time, and we'll do an inquiry similarly to yesterday, but I'll get you to, to kind of use one of these terms. So as you listen to my reflections, you might just see which one... Uh, I mean, don't work too hard to find out, but uh, maybe one has a particular resonance for you. So what, what, you know, what do we, might we mean by that? It might sound ambitious to meet life fully, fluidly, freely. And like we were just pointing to in the, in the meditation there, we say well, every moment is either you know, it has one of two tastes, right? The taste of freeness running through or the taste of some friction, conflict. And, of course, we think, oh, freeness sounds nice. But actually, much of our practice is the willingness to put ourselves into a situation where we're noticing friction, where we're willing to look at friction rather than just being caught up in the friction or denying the friction or trying to escape from the friction, etc., and I think that's something that comes alive with all of these qualities. We're invited to see how fully, or how fluidly, or how freely, or not, we're meeting experience in any given moment. My, my, uh, and maybe it would be the same for you. I think if I'd have asked myself earlier, much earlier on in my life, what would it, what would it be to meet life fully? I would have, I would, it would have had a kind of hungry or uh, consumptive element to it. And that would have been my first sense of, oh, to live life fully would mean, I don't know, to go abseiling or uh, mm-hmm. bungee jumping or something, you know, that sense of to live fully, a uh, kind of like uh, a sort of attacking experience, consuming experience, having intense experiences. That's often the... the um, Sort of, yeah, the, the worldly view, if you like, or a, a kind of not not so evolved view of of a full life, one that has a lot of intense or impressive experiences. Of course, we can we can transpose that view then to the inner realms of practice. Oh, I've got to live this moment fully, and. The way we 
you might assume that that would mean something special ought to happen. If I was to meet this experience fully, then what? Then it would, it would feel special or it would feel spiritual. And maybe we've heard accounts or we've read accounts or we've uh, spoken to others or we've read spiritual biographies. Then there's all kinds of you know, rainbow bodies and... Uh, cosmic light and spinning chakras and uh, dissolutions, etc. And maybe that sounds exotic to us. Oh, that won't Meet life fully. Or maybe we've had those experiences ourselves in moments where there's a moment of great peace or great bliss or great depth or great stillness or great understanding or great vision, great clarity. And those those. You know, the beauty and depth of those experiences kind of sear themselves into the memory, and then all oh, that, and then they become you know, maybe I mean, beautiful that the experience is there, but they become something too much of a reference point. And then we are, oh. and we tend to then to project that experience onto the rest with the imaginings that oh, uh, that's it. We hear, we hear that a lot. Oh, suddenly, I, I got it. <laughs> Really? Anything we think we've got, believe me, isn't it. (laughs) The fact that we can think we've got it means it can't be it. Life isn't gettable. You can't get hold of life. Vast, limitless, essentially free in its nature. Too free to be gotten. So those moments, precious as they are, and they form... um, They form people's experience in, in practice to different extents. Often, ironically and sometimes confusingly for people, often those more intense moments, moments of some, you know, like I say, of great clarity or great depth or great peace, etc., often appear, ironically, more intensely quite early on in practice. Sometimes with people's first retreat or early exposure to practice and, oh, something wonderful happens. That's part of what actually galvanizes the wish and the will to practice. And then after that, like Jack uh, Cornfield's book says, after the ecstasy, the laundry. (laughs) And that can be a little disconcerting or discouraging or we can think something's gone wrong or that, you know. But it's sort of like Imagine you've gone along with consciousness sort of formed along the usual habits, the usual small bandwidth, me doing my thing, and then you stop and you really attend and you feel, and suddenly, wow, things open up. And if that's all you've been used to, this narrow bandwidth, then things open up like that. It seems like, wow, wow, wow. And then back to this, oh my God. And now we know what we're missing. But, and then it seems like, you know that isn't there anymore but actually often what happens is that as we get we get used to over time a kind of more fluid kind of bandwidth such that when mind is more expansive it just, it one could taste the expansiveness but it doesn't feel wow anymore why doesn't it feel wow because actually we've gotten used to it and sometimes we don't notice that we've gotten used to it and so we think back to the first wow which felt like wow just because it was so different to you know the ordinary mind 
And actually, as we get more used to a certain inner sensitivity, a certain deeper level of relaxation in our body, a greater capacity to recognize and then to drop some of our reactivity, we may be actually operating on a wider bandwidth than we realize. And that the memory of, of how it was and then how we think it could or should be isn't so helpful. There's other ways, too, of um, viewing or having a sense of what it would be to, to meet life more fully. For a, a while, I guess, after dropping that first sense of you know, a full life in terms of a kind of consuming a lot of experiences, I then had a sense of to meet life fully meant somehow to be fully aware in, any mo- in every moment. And... While it's certainly true, like we were saying this morning, that the ground in basically being present, contactful, sensitive to life, here, right here in the midst of, can start to really be the, 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 the well-established known experience in any moment, every moment, pretty much. And that's different than the idea that I should be fully aware, as if I've got to kind of attend to every thought to everything that happens. I've got to be right here on the ball all the time. Oh dear. You know? We can actually get too... We can, and, and somebody was speaking about this the other night, getting a little... Uh, they were talking about being over-attentive. You remember those of you who were there on Friday? Right? Kind of working their practice actually too much. Trying to know everything. There's a lot going on. I mean, in any moment there's a lot going on. You know, if one's vision of living more fully is trying to take in that, all of that, overload. Somebody, you know, just read recently, somebody was talking about some scientific study, I and mean, God knows where these numbers come from. But the idea was that we may be taking in 7 million pieces of data at any one time. <laughs> I mean, I've no idea. You know, I, I'm very suspicious of all these kind of statistics. Is you know brain scanning stuff. They say we have between forty and ninety thousand thoughts a day. Measure, how do you measure that? You know, seven million pieces of data. Who knows? But the point is, you know, there's there's a lot going just in terms of sense. What's happening sensorially? You know, the world of vision, the world of sound, the world of t- touch, the world of what's being imagined or conceived of, processed, etc. One very, um, I'm hesitating to say their name, I better not, I won't say their name, but one very famous teacher, uh, a friend of mine was was studying with them and uh, was kind of surprised to find that this person spent a lot of time watching TV. (laughs) I said, hey. You spend a lot of time watching TV. And he said, he wouldn't mind. It's Hamid uh, Almas, the founder of the Diamond Approach, which is a school that some of you are familiar with and that I've been a student in for the last 15 years. And so a good friend of mine was, was at his house and he said, oh, Hamid, you watch TV a lot? And Hamid says, yeah, it's f- fantastic. It's a, like, it's a great way to give the mind a rest. 
You know, it's pro- there's a lot of processing. And actually, it's true that the, the more awake one is, the more processing there is. The more capacity there is to process. And the more that can give rise to, to um, beautiful things, insight and inspiration and sensitivities, etc. And actually then the more important it, it is to find ways to rest. There's many different ways to rest. But hey, TV is quite a good way to rest. <laughs> I notice that when I'm teaching a lot, Right. I come home from teaching a retreat, for example. There's a lot. There's a lot going on in the field of teaching, right? I mean, I'm sitting myself and practicing, and you know, kind of processing whatever's arising here. And then I'm also giving thought to what I want to speak about and how I might want to speak about it. And I'm also noticing what's happening in the field, and you know, both collectively and then individually, people I might be meeting with during the day, etc., etc. And then there's also you know, stuff going on around that to do with the logistics of the retreat and maybe the team at the Mulan where I live and what's going on there. And there's a lot going on. So at the end of the day, one might imagine, what would I do at the end of the day? Oh, meditate. Forget it! What, after a whole day of teaching? Netflix. <laughs> so... <laughs> And, you know, there's, there's a place in the text where someone asks the Buddha about this. You know, do I, do I need to be mindful all the time? And there's a couple of answers Buddha gives. One, one is a kind of humorous answer. He says, no, no, no. He says, just when sitting or standing <laughs> or lying or walking or moving between one of those. <laughs> so that doesn't... It's like, how can I watch Netflix in a position that isn't any of those four? <laughs> and then there's another, another time when someone asks the question, and, and the answer is, you need to, to uh, be awake and aware and pre- enough. It's like, enough. There's kind of background vigilance. Enough to, to, to know if you might be leaning towards something that's got friction, enough to know if you might be leaning into trouble in some way. And then Buddha just goes on in that exchange to describe the kind of different qualities. You see, sometimes awareness is like a guard in a watchtower. You know? And you know that there's, you know, there's reactivity around. And then it needs you know, vigilance. When you know there's some old habit pattern, when you know you're getting into the, the mess of some self-judgment or some judgment of others, where there's some strong emotion, right? then your attention needs to be kind of undistracted in some way, willing to really, really attend to what's here. And then, there's some other examples, and then Buddha says sometimes the awareness is like a shepherd dozing, having, taking the nap after lunch and keeping a little eye on the sheep. Right? A little bit, so some attention is still there. It's noticing what's happening. But one can feel no danger. Mm-hmm. And so that sense of being able to just abide with a gentle attention, a relaxed attention, an attention that isn't looking for problems. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we can, our practice can be really characterized by looking for problems. And then when we don't have a problem, we feel a bit dis- disorientated. You know? 
sometimes when I meet with you know, students that I've mentored their practice or meet with them and they've, always, they've got a problem and they've always got a problem and this week's problem and this and this and then real problem happens oh, there's no particular issue this week no particular problem and it feels disconcerting we get used to kind of defining our, often our sense of self our sense of our practice through the thing the stuff I'm working with the problem I'm working on very important to make space for really noticing and tasting the unproblematic nature of experience. Letting yourself actually have those unproblematic moments. And that might seem like an, an ordinary thing, but actually, you know, consciously letting yourself, letting yourself enjoy, letting yourself rest. And so there's different ways you can see for yourself you know, as, we, as we explore this and as you'll get the chance to explore it a little later to, to explain what's, what constitutes meeting experience more fully. And another aspect I would say that then I'm, you know, as, as my own understanding of what constitutes meeting experience fully moved on it's really something to do with about not flinching not turning away, not avoiding experience, not sort of picking and choosing so much. We we and we spoke about this a little this morning. You know, when something's emotionally difficult or physically uncomfortable, how easily we want to basically, you know, fight or flight. You know check out or, or rationalise or escape or something. And increasingly then that sense of what it might mean to meet life fully is to realise that it can all it's all workable. It can all be welcomed. That there is no wrong experience. It's fine. That there is no wrong experience. That there is nothing that isn't supposed to happen, that shouldn't arise. There is no thought you shouldn't have. There is no feeling that can't be allowed. There's plenty of ways you might not want to act out some of those thoughts and feelings. But that sense of meeting experience more fully most essentially means not having, a, not having kind of barriers and beliefs about what is and isn't acceptable in my own mind. Everything's workable when we let ourselves meet it. And whether that's what we call you know, inner life or whether it's what we call you know, stuff going on outwardly, the, this relationship or this situation something etc and as as the, that sense of intimacy right, more fully meeting more fully letting in then even the, the, what we we relate to or describe as somehow being out there to meet it more fully we see we're not really we don't go anywhere to have experience 
we talk about over there and we talk about that. But where does over there happen? Where's, where's that? It, it happens here in awareness. When you see that tree, when you look over there, when you look over here to me, where does the seeing happen? I'm not really, every day we say, oh, Martin's over there, up the front. But where's the seeing of me happening? Where's the hearing of me happening? It's here. It's here in awareness. And we might, as we start to taste experience more fully, more fully, we might increasingly taste the fact that nothing's really out there. Nothing's really over there. And the more we recognize that everything's happening anyway within the intimacy of awareness. Hi, in, in the garden. In the garden. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to put a song up here, thanks. Then, if nothing's happening out there, if there's nothing that shouldn't be experienced, if there's nothing we need to keep at bay, then there's really nothing that we can, need be afraid of. It seems to be the hallmark of meeting experience really fully is that there's nothing we need to be afraid of nothing in life and we'll see when we get there but increasingly it might really become clear to us nothing in death either so just evoking that sense what might it be what might it be a way I can meet life more fully and then more fluidly. That, that word was, has been very evocative for me in my practice. How might I meet life more fully? Mostly it's been evocative because I've been able to see how I was meeting life unfluidly, rigidly, tightly. And of course there's different ways in which you, you want to know what fluidly. Uh, evocative means... Um, Evocative. Evocative. Kind of brings to mind powerfully. Kind of. Yeah. Fluid, like water is fluid. With the quality that it flows, that it doesn't get stuck, that it's not uh, rigid. Opposite of rigid. Like Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. See people doing Qigong or Tai Chi. All the movements are fluid. And then just to evoke, how might I live more fluidly? Is then to start to say, whatever ways are not fluid. Typically, certainly this is the, the tradition points to three particular ways that we get rigid. Basically, we get rigid about what I want, what I think, and who I am. And we've already spoken quite a lot about the what I want, the the rigid, the fixation on the object. All the ways we can, you know, that sort of tunnel vision that happens, it's got to be that. 
It needs to be like that. I've got to have that. If only I had, if it was like that. And the rigidity of making one's well-being or one's happiness or one's okayness dependent on a, a that. And when we, when, we, when we really get close to that process, we, we, note, we can notice, we can feel. It's like our system feels frozen, fixated, narrowed. And as I say, we've spoken uh, to you know, some extent about that one thing. And the, 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 the liberation of being able to be more fluid around what we want. Recognizing, yeah, I want that, and there's some possibility. And then the rigidity of what I think, how we, we easily lose or freeze up the possibility of being fluid around our beliefs and our opinions. You know, whatever those beliefs are, whether they're kind of political beliefs or spiritual beliefs, or just the small beliefs in the moment, the belief about her or him or them, you know, oh, they're so like that. You know, we take one small piece of information and then we say, he's so much, you know, he said such and such, he's so... And we've reduced uh, this whole mysterious being to... To that one quality. It's like the story of the elephant. You know, there's this famous Indian story of six blind people come to meet an elephant. None of them have ever met an elephant before. And so they come along and one, one feels the leg and says, oh, an elephant's just like a tree trunk. And another one feels the tusk and says, oh, an elephant's like a big snake. And then no one's feeling the tail and says, oh, an elephant's like a rope. And another one's feeling the flank, the side of the elephant. Says, You're mad, an elephant's like a big wall. And the other one has the tusk. He says, no, you're all wrong, an elephant's like a, a spear. And of course they're all right. They're all right according to their experience. But they're taking a little piece of information and inferring a whole reality. Reality can't, is vast, like an elephant. <laughs> Too vast to fit into our partial views. So how might we be more fluid around our wanting, but wow, 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 particularly around our views? And it certainly seems kind of socially, politically, there's a particular polarization, you know, that we get into, and generally, of course, around views we get into polarized. It is or it isn't. It's like this or it's like that. But you know, I think we're in a world moment where there's you know, greater polarisation. Certainly if you look at the you know, Anglophone world, the US politics and the UK politics and the whole Brexit catastrophe, etc. So, you know, the, the sense of difference is very, very polarised. Right? And the more polarised it is, the more I'm right and you're wrong, it's like this and not like that, the more rigid we are. The more strongly we hold a particular view of something else, the more, you know, the more hardened we are into our position. So of course we have some views. Right? We have some views about oh, what makes sense to us politically, what seems helpful socially, 
You have some views about who I like and who I don't like. Who seems worth hanging out with and who I'd rather not hang out with. Of course we do. It's helpful to have that kind of discernment. But where does the discernment, oh, this person may have some doubts about, I'm not so sure I'd rather not, where does that get hardened into, she's such a... Or, or whatever that might be, whether it's an individual or whether it's a group. So much scope. So then, you know, when we see that playing out in our lives, then that inquiry, how might I meet life more, full, more fluidly? And then the third area then, you know, the getting rigid about what we want, getting rigid around what we think, and then rigid around who we take ourselves to be. And that... That bleeds into this third area more fully, more fluidly, and then more freely. The, the most essential uh, aspect, it seems to me, of meeting life more freely, it's, it's, free, it's the freeness of being free from taking myself so personally, free from taking what happens here so seriously free from getting so bogged down in those desires and those views and those ideas and those needs and all that history. And we need to attend to that stuff. It's very helpful to attend to the way our history and our habits and our conditioning has formed us. But can we attend to it without getting so bogged down in it? Mm. I said earlier, one of two things is happening. Either experience is unfolding freely, or there's the sense of unfreeness and we're creating some friction. But actually that's not the whole story. Actually there's a way in which, uh, as we really taste the essentially free nature of things more and more, there's a way in which that freeness can suffuse everything, including our own awkwardness or confusion or, or struggle in different moments. One of the most helpful uh, supports I ever got from one of my teachers was when I was saying how I felt like I see the way Mind is essentially free. I see the way life is essentially free. I feel like I, I can taste throughout my whole being the way everything by its nature is free. So how come I still get caught up? How come there's all this, I can also taste all this stuff here that's sort of in defiance of that freeness. And the response to me, which was very helpful, was that, hey, freeness goes in all directions, including being free to address one's unfreeness. Free to turn towards the way, oh, I've gotten hooked up by that. Oh, I've gotten uptight about something. Oh, I've gotten, uh, you know, into some little ego drama. So that even when one finds oneself caught up in something, one's not giving one, the, adding the extra layer of giving oneself a hard time about it. 
imagining that I shouldn't have gotten caught up. So that increasingly that freeness extends into whatever's happening. The freeness actually, not just to be free from our habits and all, but actually free to be as human as we are. Free to, to, um, to welcome the, the, the human stuff of desire. The human stuff of views, the human stuff of confusion, the human stuff of impatience. And when we, and the more we turn towards that, the more allowing of it we are, the more we can let ourselves freely meet that stuff. A little like we were saying this morning, the more it starts to lose its power. The more it starts to feel like, oh, this is kind of echoes, like echoes of conditioning coming back. The one that still somehow has, has the habit of um, being impatient. The one that still has the habit of making an unnecessary drama out of things. And then free enough to kind of be rather generous, rather tender, rather forgiving. Like we would with a, kind of with a, with a young child. Maybe not our own child, who we get into other things with. Maybe just a, like a really lovely nephew or niece. <laughs> Much easier to be forgiving of other people's children <laughs> sometimes than one's own. Or those of you who might be grandparents or might be parents to see how you know one gets frustrated with one's own children. But the grandparents are very gracious because they only have to do it one day a week or you know or three days a month or whatever. And that sense of bit of the f- the freeness of becoming much 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 more tolerant of ourselves tolerant of our own minds, tolerant of our humanness. And then, the more we can see that stuff happening here, the more we see some impatience here, some uh, rigidity here, and the more tolerant we are, the more free we are to meet it, the more naturally when we see others displaying that, rather than rushing to judgment, the more we see, oh yeah, I know what that's like. I've never seen anybody display any kind of mind state that I don't know myself. You might see it being displayed to a greater degree. You might see it being acted out in a way that one knows oneself. One, one you know, wouldn't act that out. But it's coming from the same place. The same kind of fear or uh, uh, panic or hurt that we can also recognize here. So then, what does it mean to meet life more freely? It means that nothing be left, need be left out. Nothing need be excluded. Nothing need be shut down. So these reflections really are in that service. How might we meet life more fully, more fluidly? more freely and that's the question I, I like to give you as an inquiry question and you can we'll, we'll get into twos like we did yesterday and so the question that you'll ask each other will be tell me a way you could meet life more dot 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 and you'll tell your partner which one you'd like them to ask you, you just 
choose one of the three. Right. Just by, by virtue of what seems evocative in the, in the moment, what seems to, to, to speak in that moment. Right. But you just choose one. You don't get all three, and one after the other. You just choose one. So if it's, if it's um, fluidly, for example... And then your, que- your partner will ask you the question, just like the, the same way we did yesterday. Tell me a way you could live more fluidly. Tell me a way you could live more fluidly. Right? And again, no need at all to rehearse the answers for that. Just let the, let the question land. And like Vibka was describing yesterday, that process of a kind of full-spectrum answer. You don't need to think your way to the answer. Just think, how, let it land. How might I live more fluidly? And it may be. Maybe that there's situations in your life that come to mind, etc., etc. And feel free to include those. But it also may be that in real time, in the answering, in the sensing, in the allowing the question, in the hearing the answer that comes forth, it may be that you get to taste something of that fluidity or that fullness or that freeness depending on how you're answering the question and if so, like we've been emphasising let yourself taste that let the quality come alive in the answering the more more we kind of give ourselves to the process of the inquiry rather than trying to find an answer the more the inquiry kind of takes on its own life Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.